I needed to not skate by for once in my life, and they didn't let me. At the end of the day, if you know that you don't feel good about the job, you got to be able to leave that behind. They just kept asking me to come back, and I truly love Milwaukee and Southeast Wisconsin. It's always great to be at WTMJ. This is WTMJ Conversations. Welcome to WTMJ Conversations. I'm your host, Libby Collins. Mark Clements is an award-winning international theater director whose work has appeared in over 100 major theaters throughout Europe and the United States. But we are lucky enough to have him as the artistic director of Milwaukee Rep. And Mark, first of all, how did you end up in Milwaukee? Mm. Well, I was working a lot in America a few years prior to being appointed here. And um, I met my uh, now wife. In Philadelphia, well, I was directing a production of Les Miserables there. And during that period of time, I was approached by the headhunter, if that's the correct term, to uh, apply for Milwaukee Rep. And I did at the very last minute. In fact, so last minute, he said I'd probably missed the deadline. And the story goes that he said, look, you know, if you were in America and not England right now, it'd be saying, could we meet tomorrow? Because that's going to be the deadline. I said, well, I'm in Philadelphia right now. And uh, where are you? And he said, why can you get to New York by 10 o'clock tomorrow morning? I said, yep. And we met in Grand Central Station in the food court there. And uh, that's where it all started. So I believe in fate. And I think it was aligned with the stars. What was it about the Milwaukee Rep that you wanted to be here? Well, you know, once you start becoming interested or potentially applying for a job, you look, you start searching. And one of the things that became really apparent, which is absolutely true, is that, you know, we're a city of, what, you know, 600,000 people or we were back at the time. It's probably grown a little since then. And what I was really impressed with was, in general, how Milwaukee as a city of that size, not a metropolis-sized city, punched way above its weight in terms of the arts. It had a really significant symphony orchestra, a ballet company, an opera company, had the rap, you know, which you could regard as one of the top 10 regional theaters in the country, and a, a lot of other smaller theater companies too. And so it became apparent that this was this jewel in the crown. And, and it was a sort of place, Milwaukee, you could read very quickly, that lived comfortably in the shadow of Chicago. It actually liked it having that shadow, which isn't always the case, because it didn't really want its city overcrowded and invaded with Chicago. And so, it, well, you know, it had a marina and all these lovely facilities and parks, and it kind of was like very happy and discreet about its own significance and its own, this own little drool in the Midwest, you know, which I kind of find attractive. But I, I've always jokingly said that I would like Milwaukee Rep to be the equivalent of the Green Bay Packers in Wisconsin. You know, this is nationally renowned franchise that sometimes where people don't know exactly where it is if they're not from here. And uh, that seemed to be a great place to start. And there was a huge amount of opportunity. The theater was not broken, but it was ready for change. And both of those things were attractive to me. What kind of change was it ready for? I think it got used to presenting a certain type of work. Uh, there weren't musicals on the main stage. There were very few new plays. And both of those things are kind of my passions in the theater, sometimes both, as we're about to just do a, a world premiere of a brand new rock musical centered around Milwaukee and with Milwaukee people, uh, indigenous Milwaukee people, you know. Uh, so uh, I think um, those were the changes, event style theater. What do you mean event style? Well, things that would be attractive to an extant audience 
but that might stretch. Because I think, I hope this doesn't sound pretentious, but I see my job as like that of a chef in a restaurant. You sometimes don't know what you want to eat or what sounds good until you sample it. So I'm always interested in what would interest me. What would you mean? My boredom threshold is like zero. I'm, I'm terrible. Like I, I get bored so easily. So I'm like always trying to think, well, if I can create theater that I would like to see, then hopefully other people would like to, too. So, you know, a good example of that might be we're developing this play. In fact, I'm going to go and see a run through this afternoon of this new play that we're developing by Idris Goodwin called Parental Advisory. And the premise of that is when is it safe to introduce the Wu-Tang Clan to your kids, which I think is a great hook. And when that was pitched to me, I was like, oh, I want to be part of that. And, you know, it takes the premise of an old school DJ and a, a young DJ and parental advisory being is that to suppress the voice of a certain generation and a certain demographic? Or is it there to warn children? You know, is there a time when you introduce children to the messages, subliminal and otherwise, that the Wu-Tang Clan would have? So I think we're getting great interest from both an extant audience who love new plays in the studio. And we're, it's giving us a great opportunity to get into a community and series of communities and a particular generation who are intrigued by that premise and would be drawn to the Wu-Tang Clan about how do those things sit comfortably. And for me, the best experience theatrically is always the shared experience, which I think is what it is. And if I think back to the things that I've loved seeing, my memorable experiences, if I put them into the top 10, they often are things that are very much cross-generational, um, where you see people of 80 and 8 enjoying the same thing at the same time, albeit perhaps on a, you know, a different level of understanding. And, uh, you know, it's like Winnie the Pooh, right? I mean, Winnie the Pooh seems like a lifetime investment. It's cute and funny when, you know, Pooh and Piglet, the, the great relationship when you're 7 and 8. And when you're 80, you go, oh, I see, that's where A.A. Milton was coming from. That was about that, too. <laughs> I'm kind of interested in those sort of theater experiences where we can come together, particularly interested in theater experiences right now that have a restorative kind of feel to them. I feel like we've come out of the pandemic, different people, children, people who miss graduations, and I think that we don't want to be preached at. We don't want to produce didactic theater. I hate saying that myself, but I do want to have theater that can entertain me and that I can also have a think about and that scratches below the surface. Coming up on WTMJ Conversations... I had emails to, you know, get back to England. We don't need you here. The artistic director of the Milwaukee Rep, Mark Clements, looks back at the first musical they produced. You're listening to WTMJ Conversations. Welcome back. I'm Libby Collins. We're talking with Mark Clements, the artistic director of Milwaukee Rep. Post-pandemic, have the audiences changed? I can speak to ourselves. I think there's an industry thing happening. And then there are certain theaters that are doing particularly well and people are scratching their heads and bucking. You know, I think each theater has its own experience. I think it is true to say that certain theaters around the country were struggling before the pandemic. They were losing audience spaces. And one of the things that I think Milwaukee Rep has done quite well, if I'm able to blow around trumpet, is that we stay deeply connected with our community. I always have, you know, for the last decade, and a half. We've done that extremely well. We've put that as a priority. We don't take anything for granted. We don't suppose what people want. We ask them. And we get out there and amongst them that's reflected in our community and education and in community engagement programs very much. So we 
don't suppose anything and we've hopefully got better at and will continue to learn and listen and get better at finding out what people want rather than supposing. And I think listening to your audience whilst you stretch them, a bit like the chef analogy, you know, before I met my wife, I hated sushi. I actually didn't. I hated the idea of it, <laughs> but actually ended up now it's my favorite food or one of them. So until you have good sushi, you go, oh my goodness, I really like this. But until someone takes you there, holds your hand, guides you into quality sushi, that's what I'm trying to do theatrically, I think. Are there certain productions that you have turned away because you just didn't think they were right for Milwaukee? Not necessarily right for Milwaukee, but maybe right for the times. So 15, 20 years ago, you know, I was very into the playwright Neil LeBute. I thought those plays that tapped into the dark side of the male psyche were kind of healthy. I know that a lot of people perhaps would disagree with me and, you know, that writer some people find problematic on different areas. But I thought he wrote really well. I thought he was a great storyteller. And it was something that just about the heterosexual male psyche that he spoke very eloquently to that and made us think about things, our toxicity and how we're brought up and the DNA and showing fragility and vulnerability. And those were interesting things. I don't necessarily think the best of those plays are without merit still, but I wouldn't consider producing a Neil Labute play right now because I just think it's not what we need, not what we want to hear. I think people need to feel joy. I think they need to leave the theater and not feeling like they need a shower and a therapy session. I think they, people want to leave feeling that they've added a layer of understanding or feel good about what they did as best we can. And that's not I want to be really clear, that's not about sanitizing uh, the pill, if you like, you know, sanitizing the messages. There's messages that need to be told. It's how we tell them. I think people are really sick of being told what to think, to feel bad about themselves, which is different to questioning and putting it out there. The great playwrights of our time, Shakespeare, Tennessee Williams, a lot of those playwrights put those stories out there. They wrote them often when they were very young people and uh, not even perhaps fully developed but they put them out there and i think the plays that have stood the test of time are those plays that allow us to bring our own thoughts to the table rather than being dictated and told what to do i resist that in life you know i mean i have a big poster of cabaret in my office because that was the first musical we ever produced on the powerhouse stage it's the first play i directed and it's huge in my office it stares at me every day because it hundred people or more told me we shouldn't be doing it and couldn't do it. I have it up there because when people tell me no, that makes me want to do it even more. So I have it there as a, we can do it and, and maybe we should do it. And sometimes you have to be brave enough to do it. And if you're not, you shouldn't be doing this job that I'm doing. Well, and it's interesting that you bring up cabaret because mm. you had come to town. Yeah. And one of the first things that you said you were going to do was a musical, which yeah. was extremely controversial. At it the was. Time. Yeah. It's hard to imagine 12, 13 years on now. But at the time, I remember it was like I had emails or letters, to, handwritten letters, you know, get back to England. You know, we don't need you here. And, uh, you know, again, my personality is such that the more you do that, the more I want to win you over or try to and present the flip side of the coin and have you think. And I think that's what the theatre can do. You know, as Oscar Wilde said, it was a great way of holding mirror up to society. I think that's what I believe in. And when you stop becoming strong or brave enough or driven enough to do it, then that's probably time to step down and let someone else take that load. Coming up on WTMJ Conversations. I think it's the difference between being a very good theatre 
and a brilliant theater. Mark Clemens, the artistic director of the Milwaukee Rep, talks about how they determine which plays to produce. Now, more of WTMJ Conversations. I'm your host, Libby Collins. Let's return to our conversation with Mark Clements, the artistic director of the Milwaukee Rep. Before you became artistic director, mm. there weren't that many original productions being put on by the Milwaukee Rep. Yeah. Why was it important <clears throat> for you to embrace that? Yeah. I've told the board this, you know, when I first pitched the idea of having a new play development program. Now we have the John Jack D. Lewis new play development program, which has been, you know, such a godsend to us, uh, all the people who've invested in that. In short, I think it's the difference between being a very good theater and a brilliant theater. How you commission new work, find it, develop it, the process in which you support the writers on that. And, you know, you have to kiss a lot of frogs to get the prints, you know, with new plays. (laughs) They're not all great, and we do cut them loose sometimes, either because they've outgrown their purpose in terms of the timeliness of them, or the story feels no longer relevant, or the writers run out of steam, or whatever, myriad reasons for letting them go. But also, sometimes running with something maybe that's not quite ready, and you're just taking a hunch. It's never fully ready. I don't know anyone who really thinks it's a no-brainer, it's done. It never is. And if you think that, you're probably going to come up short somewhere, and that's my experience. If you think, oh, everyone's going to love this. As soon as you do that, it's like the equivalent in sport of taking your eye off the ball. It'll come back and bite you. <laughs> so I think for me, I wanted Milwaukee. I'm only interested in being involved in Milwaukee Rep and making theater and art for Milwaukee Rep or producing or creating space. If we can be brilliant, I'm not interested in just being good or very good. How does the process begin? You mentioned parental advisory. Mm -hmm. Run, Bambi, run. I really want to talk to you about that. How does the process begin when either someone brings you this particular idea? Mm. Do they bring a complete book? Is it already a, a script? Where does it begin for you? Yeah, it's different for every play. I mean, so there are the page to stage commissions. So that can be... American Song was a play by Jonah Murray Smith, was a play that I was interested in being written. It was shortly after a series of events, which are now way more common, unfortunately, but it was the Sikh temple shooting here locally. It was suddenly, that was the closest on our doorstep that we'd had something of that nature. Newtown as well, which is just beyond belief. And I was talking to Jonah Murray Smith about what I consider to be I'm going to upset some people here, gun fetishism in this country. And and it was just unusual to me. You know, I live in on the North Shore and I go to my Starbucks and I saw a load of cops in there one day. And, you know, this like what cops should be carrying weapons. I get it. But, you know, there was like eight or nine of them. They were taking a break and some in plain clothes and some in uniform. And I was the only other person that wasn't a cop in there. Just was all these guns around me. And I remember it was around about 2010. And it gave me a level of anxiety, you know, and, and then I would be in cups or somewhere and see someone holding a kid and just a civilian and having a Glock on their belt. And these things were going on around us. And I think aligning the huge mental health issues we have in this country is a subject I'm particularly interested in and have some plans that I want to cultivate for the rep in future, how we can use our art to reflect some of the situations uh, that are happening in this country. And, you know, so many people, I, I don't tell me a person who doesn't deal with some kind of form of anxiety, you know, one in four people that we know of, you know, in this country, including children are on some kind of medication for mental health, you know, and we align that and the extremism of that with the extremism and accessibility in certain states of weapons or even how to get them in this country, which as a Brit is a weird stat to deal with. 
So that made me want to kind of commission a play. And I spoke to Jonah Murray Smith, who's an Australian playwright, and we'd worked with a couple of times. And I was like, is there a story to be told here? And that's how we came up with that story. And I think it was an interesting story because, you know, it was involved the father of a boy who had committed a high school shooting and was looking at his own culpability in that. And I think in a state like Wisconsin, there's so many complexities that I hadn't considered before that I thought were worthy. You know, for example, hunting in this state, rites of passage, son to father. It's not something that I particularly kind of go, oh, I get that. But I do get it in as much that I understand when someone explains to me how important that is. So it's about listening and putting all the views out there. So that's how we got that play. And then, you know, there is something like Things I Know to Be True, another Australian writer, Andrew Bavell, who'd done a production of that in Australia and very successfully and then in the UK. And I'd worked with Andrew on one of his premieres, Speaking in Tongues, both in London and New York. And I was like, how would this play translate to rural America, Wisconsin particularly? So we brought... Did you just call it Wisconsin rural America? I guess I did, right? Well, we were talking about... Like that play was set in rural Wisconsin. I so, get so okay, I, think, I understand that. No, I think that's what I meant. <laughs> so, wait a minute. <laughs> I, I think that's what I meant. Okay. So not living in a, in a big city. It was this was living outside. And, you know, I was really interested in how that play would translate to an American idiom. And so the only way of finding that out was by having Andrew come over from Australia and rewrite the play to give it as American premiere. And you know, what did we need to do? It was also dealing with a trans character in the play, and I think from when Andrew wrote that he'd become way more cognizant of the issues about trans folks and felt like the play needed to be written and we had a trans uh, well we had a non-binary actor in that company who was able to help us that process and then we ended up producing that play so it was an extant play and then there's like Rum Bambi Rum which is just an idea that you kick around with the writer what if and then there we go Still ahead on WTMJ Conversations He said there is this story and I went Rum Bambi Rum and he was like how do you know that? I don't know Mark Clements, the artistic director of the Milwaukee Rep, talks about bringing the story of Bambi Bambenic to the stage. You're listening to WTMJ Conversations. And I'm Libby Collins. Our guest today is Mark Clements, the artistic director of the Milwaukee Rep. How did this come about with Run Bambi Run? Yeah. I don't think there's anybody who's lived in Wisconsin for any amount of time who is not familiar with the story of Bambi Bambenic. But when did it get on your radar? And why did you say this could be something? Yeah, so in my second season, we were doing Lombardi by Eric Simonson, which actually I think to this day is still one of the top selling plays we've ever done. And it was just after the Packers won the Super Bowl. And at the time, you know, we had people like Paul Horning and Bart Starr around the joint and kind of being involved and, and, and Vince's daughter. And so it was just really interesting to be part of that and watching Eric, who Eric Simonson, who'd had a history with the rep prior to me being here under Joe Henretti's tenure. And uh, I was like, what's on your radar? You know, it'd be good to do something new because he was a writer as well as a director and I was interested in another story. And he said, well, there is this story about this person, Lorencia Bambenic. And I went, run, Bambi, run. And he was like, how do you know that? And I was like, I don't know, actually. But I do remember the basic part of the story that this woman was accused of killing the wife of her cop husband, who was the ex of Christine Schultz, who was murdered tragically in front of her children, and that she was sentenced to life in jail, that the 
sentence and the conviction was deemed to be on myriad counts very unsafe and when she fled to Canada with her boyfriend who she'd met who was the brother of her cellmate and then fled across the border and recaptured and resent it was like you couldn't make this up and of course there was stuff going on like how she was in you know invited onto Dr. Phil and then ended up jumping off the balcony and having a leg amputated you couldn't make this stuff up but I somehow remembered it maybe I'd seen a TV movie or whatever so we started talking about it and I was like that story is so crazy and we just talked about that and then I said you know what it should almost be a musical he was like oh that's a great idea and then why I, did you think it should be a musical because it just was so extreme you know the story and it's so contentious still is it just lent itself almost like a opera and you know there's always this feeling in fact you know some people out there who do feel we shouldn't be doing it and that it's offensive or whatever and i'm like well you know not every musical is 42nd street titanic you know people said oh you can't do titanic you're doing them i don't know if they think we're going to do a tap routine through it all or whatever but you know if you think of lemons or Miss saigon everyone dies in those shows you know and they're dealing with a particular period of history and i guess you know with dharma and ben benick i mean to this day 40 years on it's 40 years on now since Lorencia Bambenek was convicted and it's still a contentious story. It's still something that people talk about. There's still podcasts being produced. We're making a musical and there's still people alive and around who are, you know, interested in the story or outraged about the story and have very strong thoughts about it. And I think that's exactly why we should be doing it because it it looks at a particular period of history about a woman, in my opinion anyway, who was maligned. Whether people think that she knew something about it, we will never know. But the fact of the matter is that the evidence that put her away for life into Cheetah Jail was all debunked. It was all proven not to be correct. Everything from the murder weapon and that they said that convicted her, those things weren't true. So whether you whether you still believe she was involved in it or not, the things that sent her to jail would not have sent her, in my opinion, to jail today. That would have been an unsafe conviction. DNA was bungled. It was almost on a level of the O.J. Simpson case. You know, the interesting thing about the musical was like, I said to Eric, I said, well, you know, if it was a musical, who would do the music? And without breathing half a breath, he said, the Violent Femmes. Why the Violent Femmes? Um, Because they're a Milwaukee band. They were. They're all kind of disparate now, that band. But first off, there's a number of reasons. The music, I don't think we considered those. It was just a visceral response that Eric had to, this is an iconic Milwaukee band. This is an iconic Milwaukee story. We're making it in form and in Milwaukee rap. Eric is a Milwaukee guy as well. And I consider myself a Milwaukee guy now, having been here since 2009. I'm a local. So it felt to me like... That made sense. And when we started digging down, if you think about the Violent Femmes music, I guess if you had to give them a tag, would it be like folk, punk, or indie? But I mean, if you look at Gordon's writing, not just with the Violent Femmes, but with you know other bands that he's been involved in and his solo career, crosses over gospel, bluegrass, R&B, soul, rock, punk. You can't define them with one simple tag. And actually, in terms of the storytelling of this and the characters involved and not fit shoehorning Blister in the Sunks, we're not using any Violent Femme songs. This is all original music by Gordon Gaynor, which some of it is very identifiable in a way. And then some of it feels like musical theatre and some of it feels kind of a little off wall, which is what Gordon is. Coming up on WTMJ Conversations. We've got a great cast. We've got a great creative team on board. We've got great music. How all that pulls together will be the final litmus test. Mark Clements, the artistic director of the Milwaukee Rep, talks about some of the challenges of creating a rock musical based on the life of Bambi Bembenek. 
You're listening to WTMJ Conversations. Welcome back to our conversation with Mark Clements, Artistic Director of the Milwaukee Rep. It's such a tragic story. Yeah. It had to be challenging to not just come up with the story itself. Yeah. But how do you figure out at what points to place musical numbers? You can't have somebody who's just been accused, or maybe you can, someone who's just been accused of murder and may or may not have done the deed break into song, or do you? Well, I work from the premise here, and I think this is the first time I'm probably saying this out loud, is that as a parent myself, I look at the murder of Christine Schultz as a terrible tragedy. You know, so this notion that I would be, I'm coming from a place of respect. I'm not sure, I have an idea, but I'm not sure that in this day and age how Christine Schultz's family think about it. I've heard various things, but I don't know for sure. They have not reached out to you? Not directly. There have been other connections that have reached out to us about this story, and people have really strong feelings. But, you know, in terms of your question about where do you place musical numbers, I think there's this sort of an assumption that if you sing about something, in the way I look at musicals, the songs, if they're narrative-driven, it's not a jukebox musical, it's a narrative-driven story, These songs are just replacing dialogue and narrative, right? Whether it's a play. So they have to work on that basis. And the way that I look at it is that Christine Schultz was murdered in front of her children. If Lorencia Bembenic did not do it, which seems more likely than not, who did? And no one's ever been convicted. So if you think about it, it's a tragedy on myriad levels. It's a tragedy for Christine Schultz's family because the real murderer either... They may be around, they may be not. Or maybe, you know, if it was connected with some people who are still alive and some people who are not. That was never resolved. If I was Christine Schultz's family, I would be, that would be a sore question. Now, if they think unequivocally, I don't know this to be true, but if they think unequivocally that whether she did it or she didn't do it, either way, it's a tragedy. Because if they think Lorencia Benbenic did it, they didn't get justice because she walked free. And when we're talking about walking free, she pleaded no contest against second-degree murder for time served. That's a very different thing from saying you didn't do it. And that's what she fought for the rest of her life. If she did do it, then they didn't get justice either way. So I think the story is worthy of telling on a number of levels. And I think that still require questions to be asked whether those people are alive or not. And I think it's a cautionary tale on a number of levels. When someone comes to see the play, will they walk away liking Bambi Benbenek? We're discovering a lot about it. It's a brand new piece. I mean, it's Creating new work is scary. It's exciting, but it is scary. I always liken it to it's the theatrical version of base jumping. You just don't know whether it was a good idea till the parachute deploys in a timely manner, right? Before you slam into the wall or it doesn't open. So there's always that risk, which is how it should be. I mean, we have to try new work. Uh, we do the best we can to mitigate against that. I think we've got a great cast. We've got a great creative team on board. We've got great music. How all that pulls together will be the final litmus test. And, you know, some people will love it, I'm sure, and some people like it, like most things we do. But I think, you know, creating a musical and probably a rock musical is about the hardest thing you do in the theatre, I would say. Why? Because 
The music is unknown. The story is based on a true story with facts. We're presenting the facts. So I don't think we're going to be presenting anything that the audience have not heard before. But if I ask someone, as I have done many people, I'll go, do you know the story? And they go, oh, yeah. There's usually a laugh that goes with that. Oh, boy. You know, and then you'll go, what do you know about it? And their story is each person's story and recollection of that story is different. So I think we will be presenting facts. So it's some of it's supposition. What might have happened is drama. But most of the hardcore facts, you know, we've checked they're available to read in multiple sources. And we're making an opinion on actual evidence rather than, you know, what someone's vibe is. You know, someone's always got a vibe or opinion in, or, you know, they feel it in their bones. The facts are that sometimes there are facts that cannot be refuted. So the fact that it was the husband's off-duty weapon in the home that Laurencia Benbenic was on her own that night was deemed to be the weapon for ballistic experts in Canada 10 years after her incarceration and after her escape proved unequivocally that that was not the weapon that killed Christine Schultz. That doesn't mean that Laurencia Benbenic didn't do it. It's just saying the evidence that put her away was not correct. And there are a number of things that go towards showing that evidence was deliberately concealed and people were coerced. I mean, some of the most compelling evidence is that Sean, who was the older son of Alfred Schultz, witnessed the uh, person who killed his mom and said unequivocally that it was a man dressed up in a green tracksuit with a red wig, was huge. And this was a kid who knew Laurencia. He even described the fact that Laurencia had a very distinct odor, like perfume. She had a perfume that she always wore, and he knew that because they'd spent time with her and was on numerous occasions asked whether this was the per- was that Laurencia Bembenek. And he said, no, Laurie wouldn't have done anything like that. And he knew Laurie, and he was literally, in fact, the guy pushed him away. So that evidence is pretty compelling. It may have been retracted in future years because people had perhaps reason to do that. But I mean, you know, these are the facts. These are the facts that we're presenting in a story that is still intriguing and uh, having people wondering. I mean, there's nothing like an unsolved mystery that people just want to keep going at, whether it's the Zodiac Killer or whatever. Coming up on WTMJ Conversations. The final show of the season closes and we stick a shovel in the ground. We start ripping stuff out and putting stuff in. Mark Clements, artistic director of the Milwaukee Rep, talks about breaking new ground both literally and figuratively. Now, more of WTMJ Conversations. I'm Libby Collins. Today's conversation is with Mark Clements, the artistic director of the Milwaukee Rep. We have an exciting season between Run Bambi Run, mm-hmm. Parental Advisory, and yep. of course every year a Christmas Carol yep. and so many others. But at the end of the season, it's going to be really exciting for the Milwaukee Rep because yep. you're breaking new ground. Yeah, the minute this season closes, the 23-24 season, we'll be putting a shovel in the ground on the current site, which we're really happy about, and turning that building We didn't want to leave town. We didn't want to leave central town. I believe theatres like Milwaukee Rep should be right in the heart of the city. So leaving that, even if it was on the lakefront or something really beautiful, I think there was an opportunity to stay relevant. The fact that we have MSO there, the fact we have the ballet here, it felt like now Pfizer Forum, it felt like we wanted to be part of that cultural quarter, you know, be part of that. The building is beautiful and the location of it is great. You know, we're on the river. When we talked to the architects, they were talking about how beautiful the building is and just to build a shell of that would take a whole budget that we've allocated to it. So it made sense on a number of levels, culturally, environmentally, artistically to remain there. But we're going to create a state-of-the-art theatre 
that will be quite unique. We'll be the only theatre in the country that can move from within three or four hour period from a thrust stage, which is what we have now, you know, if you can know the rep where we push out into the audience to a standard proscenium arch. So we can create two different configurations, which will be a great opportunity for us to have the next big show coming in with a co-producer or a commercial producer and then take that to Broadway, the West End and, and the world. And we have the artisans, we have the capability to do that. We just don't have a building that can serve that purpose. The other thing is the building that was built in 1986 and which was wonderful at the time was deemed to be a state-of-the-art facility at that time has real access issues. There are so many people who hit a certain age and just getting their desire to come to the theater. My mom is one. My mom's 86. She wants to come to the theater still, but she just is struggling with it because there's steps and things to negotiate. If you want to be in the first four rows, you have to kind of get out through the bombs. Or if you're at the back, you have to have a chair move removed so your wheelchair can fit in there. We shouldn't, that, we shouldn't be dealing with that in this day and age. Proper access where people can hear and see and get to their seats and be able to leave if they need to in a dignified manner. Those are things that we're very fired up about. It also has a fantastic education center. The Hertzfeld Education Center will be a state-of-the-art education center. Right now when we have our morning matinees where we have packed with high school students, we call them immersion days, which are just fantastic. They're having to eat sandwiches in and around the building and in the boardroom and in all places. And now we'll actually have a place where young people can actually have a theater experience, you know, where they're well looked after, a decent amount of bathrooms and a decent amount of uh, space to be able to eat and work and learn and listen. Um, so we're excited uh, uh, about that opportunity, which literally happens as soon as the final show of the season closes and we stick a shovel in the ground. We start ripping stuff out and putting stuff in. In the 10 plus years you've mm. been at the Milwaukee Rep, what is the high point for you? If you look back at all these years that you've been there mm. and the various productions that have been presented during that time, is there any one particular moment or production that stands out? Oh, you know, so that's like the sort of Desert Island Disc question. You know, which, which record would you to what song would you take with you? It's almost impossible to ask. I think you know, certain shows have stuck out for me in terms of really landing in a way that I've loved and, you know, where I see an audience moved or changed by that experience. And maybe five or six years or more after the event, they tell you that that experience was special to them because of whatever reason. So all those, I love all of those moments when it would be hard to single down to one. But I just look, I guess I look as a whole, you know, it's been an honor to lead the company. We're the largest producing theater in the state. We have a national profile. I'm particularly proud of the new work we've generated and the fact that actors, artists, people want to come and work for us, often for not a lot of money or certainly not what they're worth, to support the company because they believe in what we're doing. I'm proud of the progress that we have made and continue to make as far as EDI initiatives. I'm proud. I think that the audience profile has got younger. I mean, some people will come on a Sunday matinee and say, I, I only seen gray hair. And you go, well, actually, you should maybe come on a Tuesday night when or a student night on a pride night, and you'll see a very different demographic. You know, so I'm proud of how that audience has changed. You know, moving the needle in theater is a slow process. You have to be very patient and celebrate your small triumphs. So that's probably not what you wanted me to say, but that's how I can best answer it, I think. Mark Clements, Artistic Director at the Milwaukee Rep. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you for your time. 
We've been talking with Mark Clements, the artistic director of Milwaukee Repertory Theater. For over seven decades, they've been a centerpiece of Milwaukee's vibrant arts and cultural scene, with productions ranging from Broadway musicals to Shakespeare to American classics. And of course, their new work is called Run, Bambi, Run, about the real-life story of Milwaukee's Bambi Bimbenek. Now, if you joined us late and you want to hear our entire conversation with Mark Clemens, go to WTMJ.com and share today's show with your friends and family. You'll also find a partial transcript courtesy of eCourt Reporters. For WTMJ Conversations, I'm Libby Collins.